You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. The book of First Samuel is a book, one well, about Samuel, but about Saul and about David. And so the chapter here is a, a little piece about the coronation of Saul. And so I titled this An Ominous Coronation. So let me take you back, and then I'm going to read from the scriptures and we'll pray, and then we'll jump in. So around the summer of 1990 or 91, I was about eight years old, nine years old. I lived in Palm Beach Gardens, not too far from here, and I was convinced that I was going to mow the front yard. And so I asked my stepdad to get the lawnmower, and I talked him into it, and he went through some safety protocol that I was not interested to listen to. I just wanted to do it my own way. And so I said, yeah, 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 that's okay. I got it, I got it, I got it. And then so I was encouraged. I wanted to cut the grass because I'd seen many baseball games on TV and I'd seen the grass in the outfield just mowed beautifully. And I desired that for our yard at my house. And the problem is that our yard at my house was full of weeds. It wasn't like the yards or the grass or the plains that were at a baseball field or many of the golf courses that my grandfather took me to. But I wanted to do it nonetheless. And so I grabbed it outside of his instruction. I just started walking into the yard with the lawnmower. There was no rhyme or reason. And he told me I needed to start from one side and move to the next side. But I just wanted to go in. So I started aiming for the middle. And then when I finished that route, I turned around and I aimed back and I aimed back. And about five or 10 or 11 passes, the yard looked like a mess. It looked like a spider web. And this car drove by and it stops right in front of my house. And they look bewildered. And they start pointing and they start laughing because the yard is a mess and it looks like a spider web. And so I went back inside, humbled, and I asked my stepdad, Larry, I said, can you just show me how to do it, please? I had an issue, I had a problem. I didn't want to listen to instructions. I didn't want to humble myself, in a sense, as an eight and nine-year-old. I wanted to do it my way. And as we're looking at the book of 1 Samuel chapter 10, that's kind of the heart and the mind of Israel as well. They just want to do it their way. Unfortunately for them, the stakes are a lot higher as well. So let's look at that passage. Chapter 10, verses 17 through 27. It says this. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mitzvah. And he said to the people of Israel, it says the Lord, the God of Israel. I brought up Israel out of Egypt and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today, you have rejected your God who saves you from all calamities and your distresses. 
you have said to him, set a king over us. Now therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. And Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot, but when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again to the Lord, or of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran, they took him from there, and when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him who the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. Then Samuel told the people all the rights and the duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and he laid it up before the Lord. And then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. And Saul also went to his home at Gibeah. And with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellow said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. Mm. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. God, we need you. Lord, we have, Lord, in your word here, Lord, a story of what happened. Lord, the picture of how Israel decided to reject you by asking for a king. There's a lot of confusing things about the story, but there's also this strong encouragement, Lord, that we would trust you, that we would not lean on to our own strength, that we would trust you. So I pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom and grace to learn these things. In your son Christ's name, amen. All right, friends, well, hey, there's a few ideas I want to share with you today. And if you're inclined to write these things down, write this down. It's my first point. Find your hope and your joy and your protection in God alone. Say it again. Find your hope and your joy and your protection in God alone. I think in the scheme of things, it's not a controversial thing to say, find your hope and your joy and your protection in God alone. In fact, I don't think anyone would say that's a controversial thing to say. In, in fact, I like the way the psalmist worded it. In Psalm 73, he says something similar. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He even asked the question, like, who else is in heaven but you? And it has a self-evident answer. There's no one in heaven except God. And so when we say, find your hope and your joy and your protection in God, I think we're saying something that's self-evident. But the problem is, as there's always a problem, is that there's a big difference between the things we're willing to affirm Right? It's a good thing to say, put your hope and your joy and your protection in God, and then the way we choose to live. So we can phrase it another way. Do you, as a person who claims to trust Christ, regularly put your hope 
and your joy and your protection in God. Oftentimes, there's a big chasm, a big gap between what we say we affirm to be real and true and, in fact, where our lives actually fall, how we actually practice trusting the Lord. Now, for Israel, Israel had a big problem trusting God. And in fact, as you read through Genesis and Exodus, all the way through Judges and into 1 Samuel here, it seems it's just story after story of a group of people willing to say, my hope and my protection and my joy and my joy is in God alone. And then also, moment after moment, and generation after generation, just seems to walk away from God. And we're in another one of those moments right now. In this particular moment, they've been asking for a king. And they're asking that, that, uh, that, that God would give them a king so they could be like all the other nations. Now, a little bit of background. So the book of 1 Samuel has lots of, you know, interesting people in it. One of them is Samuel. And if you were to kind of go back and read through the first few chapters of Samuel, Samuel is essentially this boy who's been entrusted to the temple or entrusted to the tabernacle, kind of in this, from a young child growing up uh, with the priest, becoming a priest and a judge himself in the future. And he's kind of looked at in the book of uh, 1 Samuel and in the Bible itself as just a godly man, a man who loves the Lord and trusts him. Another important person in the book of Samuel is a guy named Eli. Eli was the priest directly before Samuel. And Eli, uh, he's kind of a mixed character. He is a guy who knows truth. He knows the word of God. He knows what is right and what he should be doing. But he's also a guy who falls into temptation. He has two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And these two sons are not a good group of people. They're the type of guys, if you were to send your kids to school, you would see them smoking on the corner. You're like, hey, don't hang out with those guys, okay? That's kind of how Hophni and Phinehas were. And so Eli is kind of the judge in the first early portions of this book. And he has these two wicked sons. And it's just kind of like from bad to worse type of situation type of deal. And the Lord is judging Israel because of Eli and Hophni and Phinehas and other things that they're doing. Samuel comes around and he essentially kind of takes over being the primary judge and primary priest of the book. But he has children. And I guess Eli is the one who taught him how to be a parent. And so now his kids didn't raise up uh, to be good, wholesome, God-fearing people. They're also kind of wicked and they followed in the ways of Hophni and Phinehas. And so Israel keeps on being in this kind of perpetual, like, like, rinse cycle of just tumbling up and tumbling down, finding themselves outside of the favor of God. One of the problems that they had is they had a group of people on their border called the Philistines. And the Philistines were like their, their thorn in the flesh. And they would regularly go to battle with the Philistines. And the problem is, is that oftentimes when they went to battle, Israel was not trusting the Lord. And so the Lord used the Philistines as a means to discipline Israel. And Israel was getting exhausted. They were getting tired. They were literally and physically being beat up by this other 
group of people. And finally they said, enough. And so they go to Samuel and they say, we want a king over us. Ask for a king. And so what we know, because the Bible tells us this, is that their asking for a king was a rejection of God. And so by the time we get to chapter 10, what we're actually getting to is we're getting to the moment where we're about to coronate Saul as king of Israel, and that's where we are in this passage. Now, look in the first few verses here, in verses 17 through 19. It says that Samuel calls the people together at Mitzvah, and he says some harsh and difficult things to Israel. He says this, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. Now think about this. In this moment that, that Samuel is about to coronate and make Saul the king of Israel, why in the world is he talking about Moses in the Exodus? I think if we want to get there, we have to get back to the reason that they asked for a king in the first place. So flip with me a little bit, and we'll do a little bit of this together. Back to chapter 8, verses 19 through 22. This is the first moment that the Israelites asked uh, Samuel for a king. And they actually just lay their cards on the table. They're not pretending at all. They're going to they're gonna say exactly, this is what we want, and this is why we want it. It says this, But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. This is verse 19 of chapter 8. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. And that we also, and here he gives three reasons. One, that we also may be like all the nations. Two, that the king may judge us. And three, that he may go out before us and fight our battles. Why does Israel want a king? Well, Reason one, they have a little bit of FOMO. You guys know what FOMO is? FOMO is fear of missing out, right? Like this other countries, they have kings. We've never had a king before. And it's almost like we really wish we had this king so we can kind of be like everyone else. Or maybe it's kind of like that expression we have that when we say the grass is greener on the other side, right? You, you look at your neighbor's yard and you're like, man, how does that guy have greener grass than I do? And then the idea is he's looking at your yard and he's saying, how does that guy have greener grass than I do? The grass is always greener on the other side, except I looked at my neighbor's house um, through Google Earth and his grass actually is greener than mine. So I want to talk to him about that and figure that out. But Israel had an issue and they had a problem as well. They desired and they wanted to be like the other nations. Now reading the Bible and kind of reading that right now, it's, it's somewhat sad, isn't it? You're, you're knowing that they have access to the maker of the heavens and the earth, and he is leading and he is calling them. He's given them their, his word through Moses and his law through Moses. And at the end of the day, what they really want is just to be like the other nations. But there's a second aspect. And the second aspect was, well, the judging, but then the third aspect, I guess, is that they wanted a king to go out and fight for them. So go back to chapter 10 where, where we are. 
And it says, and he says here, um, thus says the Lord, the God who brought you up out of Egypt, who delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. Why was it important that Samuel and that the Lord would remind Israel of what he did for them in Egypt? Because essentially what the Egyptians or what the Israelites are doing is they are rejecting God because they want to be protected. And Samuel is saying to them, the Lord is protecting you. Like he is your protector. You don't need a king to do this for you. You already have the Lord doing this for you. Now, part of the problem is, is that their disobedience is like just, just they're constantly disobedient to the Lord. And so the Lord's using the Philistines to discipline them, to draw them, draw them back in. But they can't seem to get that message. So the Lord is trying to remind them that it's actually him who has provided for them. And then so Samuel then says something that I think is extremely harsh, but also honest. And he says in verse 19, but today you have rejected your God who saves you from all of your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. I'm wondering what Israel's thinking. Can you imagine in that moment being Israel, listening to the words of Samuel? We're saying, hey, we want a king. And then Samuel's like, guys, the Lord provided for you. He rescued you from Egypt. And now you are rejecting him. And what does it say Israel says in response? It doesn't say anything. It's actually silent. I always like wondered, if this was a movie, how would a director portray this? Right? Samuel's in front of the crowd, and he's speaking to them, and he's talking to them, and they have nothing else to respond with except silence. What can they say? They can say nothing. But their problem is self-evident, and their problem is this, is they have not learned to put their faith and their trust in God They've put it in something else altogether. Now, now, this is, maybe we can call this a treasonous act. Let's look back at chapter 8 as well. I'm going to kind of point out something else that's happening here. In chapter, oh no, no, we, we did chapter 8. We did that already. So, we asked the question, why? Why? Why is, Israel, why is Israel doing this? Why are they rejecting God for who he is? Well, one, I think we can say that their minds are corrupted, right? They are, um, they are kind of just bent against God. And as we've been going through 1 Samuel in the life of our own church, one of the things that we've been realizing is, or one of the things I've just been trying to make sense of this whole passage is, it's almost as if th- this passage exists so that we can see that, that our inclination is just to kind of rebel against the Lord. And we're seeing that over and over and over again. So why is Israel doing this? Well, their minds and their hearts are corrupted. I'm reminded of Romans chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. It says, There is none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, and they use their tongues to deceive. And the venom of asp is under their lips, and their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. 
and their feet are swift to shed blood, and in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So why does Israel reject God in this way? Maybe something we could say is this is just what we do as people. We have all the information that we need to, to have to make good decisions, yet there's this broken us, brokenness in us, this depravity in us that's not just in you or you or you, but it's in all of us, your neighbors and us, that inclines us to kind of be bent against God. And so it's kind of the point of the scriptures that they would just display that this is our nature so that when we would hear about what Christ has done for us, we'd say, yes, finally, thank you. Because us making our best decisions, we're the ones asking for a king and saying, you know what, can you appoint someone over us because we need some help right now. That's what we do. A second reason they do this is because they're just tired of the discipline of the Lord. But here's a second idea. Hear this with me. The Lord's perfect plan is infinitely better than your own devising. Point number two. The Lord's perfect plan is infinitely better than your own devising. So back to chapter 10, verses 20 through 24. We are being presented with Samuel. He's calling all of Israel to kind of gather, you know, together. And he calls the tribe of Benjamin, the drama's building, and he brings them by the clans. And then finally they call Saul, the son of Kish, who's going to be this new king. He's going to be the protector. He's going to be the one who's going to fight for them. And it has this weird thing it says about Saul. In this moment, it says that they looked for him, but they could not find him. And so they inquire of the Lord, Lord, where is this guy Saul? And they said, is there someone else to come? And the Lord says, no, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Now, Saul is this interesting guy because Saul kind of paints two different pictures. On one side, Saul is wealthy. The Bible tells us that he comes from a wealthy family. Two, it says that Saul is handsome, which means he's more like Pastor Chris and less like me. The Bible also says that he's tall. It actually describes him as head and shoulders above everyone else. And so if we were going to, you know, maybe pick a king, pick someone that we want to rule over us, we're going to pick the wealthy guy, we're going to pick the tall guy, and we're going to pick the handsome guy every single time. So we have one side of Saul. He walks in the room, we see him. But then there's this other side of Saul. And the other side of Saul is a guy who's somewhat weak, who doesn't really have it together. I think we could say that Saul is spiritually uninterested. Earlier in the book of Samuel, there was a moment where they said, let's go see Samuel. And then Saul says, I'm sorry, who's Samuel again? Right? Has no idea who Samuel is. Which is kind of hard to believe because Samuel is the judge and the priest of Israel, and he has no idea who he is. So Saul's spiritually uninterested. It also describes this really big guy as the guy hiding in the baggage. He's a fearful man. We all know what it means to be fearful, but he's fearful. And so you can imagine this big, tall, lanky guy hiding in baggage. And finally, he lacks leadership initiative. 
It seems that every time he's doing anything in the chapters of 1 Samuel, it's other people making decisions for him. It's a servant when they lose their donkey saying, hey, we should go to Samuel's house. Or it's when he's hiding in the baggage. It says that they grab him and they pick him up and they put him on the stage. Every turn, it's other people making decisions for Saul. So we have a physical specimen who looks like a leader, and then we have an actual specimen who has no leadership abilities at all. And I think this is a picture of how, how kind of we strive and try to fix things and make our own plans. Because if we're going to try to fix things or make our own plans, we're going to pick the Saul-like person rather than God. When God makes a plan, he picks the right person. And so later on, Saul is contrasted to David, right? And how, how is David described? David's not heads and shoulders above other people. David's described as ruddy. And the word ruddy means like pink-faced, which I guess just means he's childlike. In the moment when Goliath is trying to fight and kind of come out and attack Israel, you know, the Israelites wanted Saul to fight their battles, but it was David who eventually went out and fought their battles. So there's this pattern of devising. And I think what's kind of happening here, and we can kind of see this, is that we have an inclination as people that we want to make our own plans. And so Israel's making their own plans. It even kind of goes back to the Garden of Eden. You can think about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, thinking that they could kind of come up with a better plan what the Lord gave to them. At their heart, they had pride. They had a sense that they knew better than what God had for them, that their plans and their way of doing things will lead to a better future. Israel thought the same. Their pride made them sense that they knew better than God, that their plans and their way of doing things will lead them to a better future. And don't we just do the same thing as well? Don't we kind of make our own plans and devise our own future outside of the Lord? We think, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to go to this school, or I'm going to do this thing, or I'm going to marry this girl, or I'm going to do this task, or have this hobby, and we do it all devising maybe what we would, might consider our perfect lives outside of even asking the question, Lord, what do you desire of me? What do you want me to do? Submitting our lives to him. So Israel had this pattern. They rejected God. They had some sort of predicament or problem. They presented a solution, and then they celebrated. So you can see that pattern here. So they hide him, or he's hidden among the baggage. Verse 23, then they ran and they take him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. Verse 24, and Samuel said to all the people, do you see him who the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. All right, so notice the progression of the story. Samuel says, the Lord brought you out of Egypt. The Lord is your strength. You are rejecting him. Silence, nothing happens. We look for the guy. We find him hiding in the baggage. And then the first time Israel speaks, what do they say? Long live the king. 
I think if this was a movie, like we were to put this to some sort of screenplay, there's some sort of ominous, dark music happening in the background as Israel is shouting, long live the king. Because you know what? All of us know, because we're all reading the story, and we can, all, we can see a lot of problems happening here, that things are not going to go well for Israel. But what's interesting, and, and there's this same pattern back to chapter 5, and I'll let you guys explore it. But they had another problem, and they devised their own plan, and they brought the ark of God with them, and they shouted in excitement. But there's like this moment when we are like devising our own plans, and we think it's good. Back in chapter 4, they devised their own plan. They brought the ark into the camp. They're going to fight the Philistines, and they all shouted in excitement. Back here in chapter 10, they had a problem. They had a predicament. They came up with a plan. They built it all together. They're coronating their king, and they're all shouting in excitement. But what we know from what happened in chapter 4 and followed, and what we know what's going to happen in the life of Saul as well, is that all things are not well. And maybe there's times of joy. Maybe there's times of laughter and of fun or excitement or celebration. Maybe some high moments. But just because we're experiencing some sort of high moment doesn't mean that we're honoring the Lord or trusting him with our lives. And so we see in the life of Israel, even in this moment, that as they're shouting, what we know is just around the corner is calamity, is danger. They rejected God as their king because they wanted their own king, but still something else. And finally, it's this. This is a third idea. Put your hope in God's mysteriously beautiful plan and thereby save yourself from sorrow. Hear that again. Put your hope in God's mysteriously beautiful plan, and thereby save yourself from sorrow. Looking in verses 25 and 26, let's read it again together. Then it says, Then Samuel told the people the rights and the duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book, and he laid it up before the Lord. And then Samuel sent all the people away, each, to, each one to his home. And Saul went also to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him, and they brought him no present, but he held his peace. Let's just make some observations together. Samuel is leading the moment. He's doing everything he, he, he can do to kind of like set this up as best as possible. And then even in the midst of Israel's rejection of God, right? And it is rejection. It says it twice in chapter 8. It also says it here in chapter 10. Israel is rejecting God that the Lord is providing for Saul and the Lord is providing for Israel. And so it tells us that the Lord gives Saul these mighty men. And it uses the word, um, it uses the word uh, men of valor whose hearts God had touched. Why did God do that? Why did God, why did God bless the people of Israel? Why did God bless the, this new king, Saul? 
when the very action itself was a rejection of his kingship and a rejection of his authority and a lack of trust and an act of unbelief? I think the reason we see this is we're getting painted this picture that the Lord is faithful and good even when we're not faithful and good. And so even when Saul was, was uh, I'm sorry, even when Samuel was speaking to the people of Israel and saying, hey guys, in this moment you have rejected the Lord, the emphasis was on you have rejected the Lord. But what's happening on God's side is God has not rejected his people. God is being faithful to them and even using this moment as an act of discipline and grace so that Israel can learn to trust him and believe in him and give themselves to him, even if it takes them going through Saul so they can get to David. And that's another thing that's happening here as well. And I said in this point, put your hope in God's mysteriously beautiful plan. Because because the act of requesting and asking for a king is a rejection of God. Yet at the same time, is it not the Lord's plan that we would have David, and through David we would have Solomon, and through Solomon we would have Christ? So even in the midst of Israel's rejection and their, their, their uh, unbelief, it's still the world, Lord working some gloriously beautiful plan. And so we could say that the Lord uses the grossest of things to create beautiful things. He uses difficulty and brokenness to create beautiful things. The illustration has often been described as using manure to create roses. The Lord does that. I think we can use the word sovereignty. The word sovereignty means that the Lord is in control of all things. He's sovereign. So think back to your life, and you think, of, you think at times your life feels out of control. You can't control what's happening at work, or what's happening in your neighborhood, or what's happening at church, or what's happening in government, or what's happening at the health department. Yet the whole time, the Lord is absolutely in control of all things. He's sovereign. Another word we can use is the word providence. The word providence means that the Lord is actively working a good plan in your life that all the different circumstances and things that are kind of at work, the Lord is using to kind of draw you along this timeline of life, growing you to maturity and completion. And so we can think of the example of Joseph from the scriptures. Joseph is probably one of the greatest examples of how the Lord used just a lot of sin to accomplish something great and beautiful. And so Joseph was abandoned by his brothers, he was left for dead in a hole. He was sold into slavery. He eventually was a servant in someone's house. He was accused of a sexual assault, falsely accused of a sexual assault, thrown into jail, and then eventually found himself in the king's court in Egypt, and the Lord provided for him. And then he comes face to face with his brothers again at the end, and he sees them. And what do you think Joseph does? You think he kind of gets small minded and is like, I'm going to get you now, you know? He doesn't. He says to him, what you meant for evil, the Lord meant for good. So even here in the midst of, of Israel rejecting God and saying, hey, we want our own king, the Lord is working his plan because we move from Saul to get to David, to get to Solomon, eventually to get to Christ himself. 
And so the Lord uses these things. Maybe we can also remember Romans chapter 8, verses 28. It says that all things, that we know that all things God works for good to those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. How does the Lord do that? I don't know. I don't think any of us fully understand the calculus, how the Lord uses sin, sinfulness and brokenness to accomplish beautiful and good things, but we know and we trust that he does. And so even in the midst of it, we go through difficulty. We experience uh, maybe a job loss or some sort of brokenness or some relational break. Or what are you doing? We know that the Lord is working his plan to grow and mature us. And we know even now in the life of Israel, that's exactly what he's doing. He's guiding, he's growing, he's caring Israel that they would learn to trust him. And so we ask the question, how do we respond this evening to 1 Samuel chapter 10, a seemingly random passage out of the Old Testament, talking about the coronation of Saul himself. Well, I think we learn the lesson that the Lord is teaching Israel, that it's not about us trying to accomplish our own plan and our own work, our own devising, but rather that we would trust the Lord. We would trust his plan. We would trust his purpose. And that we would submit ourselves in those things. Two, it's if we find ourselves in a group of people like bent against the Lord, you know, I think I'm gonna exit that group and say, you know what, you guys go go to your own thing. I'm gonna I'm gonna stay over here faithful to the Lord. We guard ourselves from the dangerous idea that we're better and smarter than we actually are. Israel thought they had a better and smarter plan than what the Lord had for them. And then I think something else we do is we receive the different events and things that happen in our lives and we trust the Lord fully and completely each step of the way. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. God draw you nearer to him through his word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.